0: Good morning. Please open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Find the notes for this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the bulletin. And this morning, we continue our study of the text of John's Gospel. We will be in these first 18 verses, my, my current math, probably five weeks to get through them. And it's because... John is laying the foundation, the major themes, the central points of his gospel here. It is profound truth. I'd like to begin by reading the first 18 verses of John's gospel. I thought it might be a bit tedious to title. In one sense, these first weeks could be part one, part two, part three. So even as we're looking at the next three verses, verses three through five, we need to see them as fitting within these opening 18 verses. Verses. So let's begin by reading Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. Upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Lord God, we rejoice at the prospects of knowing you more fully. And we just read that. It is your Son, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who fully, perfectly reveals you, who makes you known. We would know you more. So, Lord God, we we know that we depend upon your Spirit for that increase. Give the increase to your Word. Make it grow. Make it bear fruit. Give us understanding. Give us faith. And help us to see and behold the glory of your Son. In Jesus' name. Amen. These opening five verses of the prologue start by setting out who the Word is. And I argued that the Word is the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 14, where the Word becomes flesh. And John, other than some of the other Gospels, starts further back. When we studied Luke, it started with the Annunciation by the angels, to John's parents, and to Mary. And then Luke works his way to the Mount of Transfiguration, revealing to the reader, as Jesus reveals to the watching countrymen, who he is. And so, as we worked our way through Luke, the questions get raised, who is this, who is this, it's the prophet. Until finally, on the Mount of Transfiguration, all doubt is removed This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is the son of God. This is the prophet of whom Moses predicted. This is the Messiah. John starts with the deity of Christ and then works the other way. He starts with Jesus' deity and then moves to the incarnation. He starts even further back. Last week, to simplify, John declared in emphatic terms... The Word, who has become the Lord Jesus Christ, is fully God, and yet He is distinct from God. God, we learn, exists in oneness and in plurality. The Word is God. This week, He shows us that the Word is God through His activity. Through His activity. John echoes the book of Genesis with His opening words in the beginning. And just as Genesis begins within the beginning and then moves to the creative acts of God, so here, John, after echoing that opening phrase, moves to creation, to light and darkness. He's still firmly moving in those themes. We're going to look at the word who is the creator. The word who is the creator. And again, John is emphatic. You see the redundancy, just as there is redundancy at the end of verse 2. He was in the beginning with God, which is right where it starts. He's going to make the point of the word as creator emphatically. All things are made through him. That's clear, but it's not clear enough for John. And without him was not anything made that has been made. John wants there to be no wiggle room, no escape hatch. Absolutely everything was made by the word. So point one, the word is the creator of all. The word is the creator of all. Of all, which makes sense. He's God, and God made the heavens and the earth. John is making that next point clear. We see that in the first phrase: "All things were made through Him." All things were made through Him. I want three points here. First, is Jesus then, or the Word, as He's been introduced so far in John's Gospel, is absolutely distinct from all creation. He is absolutely distinct from all creation. This is seen most clearly in the Greek of this text. Um, literally, what we have for everything that has been made is everything that has come to be. Come to be. And in stark contrast, the things that come to be is the word who was ising, for lack of a good translation. I used to have a professor who would say, Jesus is. And so. At the creation, the word was already being, and in contrast to the word who was already being at creation, the creation is defined as those things that have come to be. The implication there was a time where they were not, now they've come to be. And in contrast to the things that have come to be is the word who in the beginning was. That distinction is important to make. Some of the errors um, in in some I won't say sex of Christianity but in Mormonism and other religions, is to confuse Jesus, not with God, but to confuse him as a created being. The greatest of the created beings. And John has clearly got a line here, and on one side of that line is everything that has come to be. Emphatically, everything that has come to be. On the other side of that line is God, who made everything come to be. And Jesus is on the God side of that equation. He is distinct from creation. He is not part of the creation. Now, he steps into the created order in verse 14. He will identify with the creature. But in eternity past, he is absolutely distinct from the creation. And this is the basis for God's holiness. Part of the reason why the Israelites were forbidden from making images of God is he's not like the creature. The the gods of the peoples could be compared to bulls or trees or other things. And in Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In Isaiah 40, who will you compare me to? so, So the first thing you need to understand about God is he is distinct from the creation He is transcendent. He is a theological word. He is other than the created order. He is the one who made all things, but he's not part of the all things that were made. He is absolutely distinct from the creation. Second point we see, he is the author of all creation. Genesis 1 tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now we know which member of the Trinity it was who created, and it was the word Jesus, as we know him, is the author of all creation, which is informing. You're going to go back and read Genesis 1 a little differently now, knowing this is the one we've come to know as Jesus. And I make that distinction because Jesus is the name the word took upon his incarnation. The, the angel told Mary he will be called Jesus. Um, the son or the word takes on flesh, and in taking on flesh, takes on the name Jesus he is the creator of all. Two points here. He created out of nothing. What is sometimes referred to in the Latin as ex nihilo. Um, this is important because the authority of God, the authority of the word, rests in his authorship. Um, in, in some creation accounts of other religions, God or the gods come upon formless matter and shape it. And that is a smaller claim to authority. You didn't create it. You simply shaped it. The the biblical record, the testimony of scripture, is that all that there is, this podium, this platform, those chairs, your hand, your hair, your glasses, the trees, the grass, the pavement, your car, everything, the stars, Orion Nebula, every mote of dust in a sunbeam was created out of nothing by the word of God. And that is the basis, or a basis, for God's claim to lordship and rule over it. He is the author of all creation. It was created out of nothing. And not only that, but in the tenses here in the Greek, what John is literally saying is there is nothing that is in a state of having been made or having come to be that was not made through him. It's emphasizing not just the creation, but the ongoing sustenance created and upheld by the power of his word. So Christ made all things, and he sustains all things. And this is something taught elsewhere in scripture as well. In Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of his word. That is awesome. You and I continue to exist and draw breath. The sun and the moon and the stars continue to be because of the power and the sustenance of the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what John these, these are the types of claims John is setting out. And I'll remind you that John is doing this because in his thesis, He's written for one purpose, that we might believe two things about Jesus, that he is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the sacrifice, he's the Savior, and he is the Son of God, the deity of Christ. John is saying you've got to come to believe that Jesus is both the promised Messiah and God's fellow and equal, he is in fact God, and that by believing those two things, by believing that, you would have life in his name. And so, wrapping your heads around this, that Jesus is far more than a good teacher, he is far more than a prophet, he is far more than any mortal man, is is critical. We we saw last week, I'll point you to again, turn to chapter 3. There are people in John's gospel who believe things about Jesus. Nicodemus, for one. Nicodemus, we'll, we'll get there in a few months. Nicodemus... Well, just go to the end of chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. And we want to go, good for them. When they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. What? Well, then I think Nicodemus is an example of just such a person. Look at one. Now, there was a man, the Pharisees, and Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is truly with him. So what does Nicodemus believe about Jesus? Well, he believes Jesus works signs. He believes Jesus is from God. And that's not enough. Which is why Jesus can say to him in verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. You don't receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He said to Nicodemus, who believed Jesus was from God and a worker of miracles. So for some, coming to believe Jesus is from God and a worker of miracles may be a step on the way to believing he is the Messiah and the Son of God, but for Nicodemus in chapter 3, that's not good enough. In other words, John is forcing us to commit... To Jesus as being God in the flesh, the creator of all. I mean, I understand the implications of his authority. Or reject it, but there's no room for your good teacher come from God. That, that's, that's John's emphasis. He's starting here, hardline, emphatic. This one who is the savior of the world, this one who is the living word of God, is himself God and is the creator of all. He is the author of Of all creation. He created out of nothing and he sustained things by the power of his word, which brings to the next implication, point three. That then means he has absolute authority over all creation. We get that. The author has authority. You make something, it's yours. This is the thing we got to grapple with. We are. Creatures, we are made beings, we are owned, possessed, created by another, and we flex and we don't like that. But it's Jesus' authority which gives him the right to do what he wants with his creation. Tur- turn, to, turn to chapter 11. Mary and Martha wrestled with this, they struggled with this. Chapter 11 of John this is the basis Jesus' authority as the creator is in part the basis for why he has the right and why there's nothing wrong with what he does here. John 11, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and his sister Martha. It was Mary who had anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, I'll get here eventually, but make no mistake. Jesus intentionally delays so that Lazarus will die. That's what he does. He intentionally delays so that Lazarus will die. Now, we know, having read the book, if you've read the book, that he will call Lazarus from the grave. He will resurrect Lazarus, resuscitate him. We know that. But still, it's the basis that Lazarus is one of the things he created that gives Jesus the right to say, no, I will wait three days. I will allow my creature to die for my purposes it, they're good purposes. They're loving purposes. But the fundamental right to do as he pleases with the creation is based upon he's the creator. Lazarus is his. That means we are his. That means my kids are his. That means my house, my savings, my life, my hopes, they're his. And so are yours. He has absolute authority. Over all creation. It is his to command. This is why Jesus can have commandments. John 14, 15: If you love me, you will keep my commandments. People in authority have commandments. Everyone else just has requests and suggestions. But Jesus has commandments. In Revelation 19, he shows up with the title of the universe. King of kings, Lord of lords, written on his thigh. It's his to command, and point two, it exists for his purposes. And again, this this gets back to settling disputes of authority. Who has the right to define what is good and what is wrong? The creator does. Who has the right to define what marriage is, what the family is, what the homes would look like? God does. But to put it another way, by what right do we have to say about anything? We didn't come up with these things. They're not our invention. We didn't create anything. So John is starting slowly and emphatically to establish, understand first, this one who is the word of God is himself God and God's fellow, and it is he who made all things, every last bit of it. It's his. If we're to understand the story John's about to tell, we've got to start understanding that. Understanding that. And, and John is painfully emphatic. Point B here under one, without him was not anything made that was made. And again, John, John likes the redundancy. He wants to make it emphatically, you, you, just in case you missed it. Well, does that mean that maybe there's no, nothing. Anything that is in the category of things that have come to be, anything that is in the category of made things, anything and everything in that category was made by him. Uh, I, I suggested last week, and I'll suggest it again, if you talk to a Mormon missionary, they want to argue about Greek translations of, of verse 1. You don't know Greek, that's fine. Just just go to verse 3. If If someone's trying to argue Jesus is a creature, well, then he's a self-created creature. Because verse 3 makes it really clear. Anything that has come to be, came to be through Jesus. So he can't, unless you want to suggest he's self-creating, which doesn't make any sense, clearly he's not part of the created order. He's, he's separate from outside of the created order. Without him was not anything made that was made. R.C. Sproul says, and here's my first point, that means then there is no maverick, free, unowned molecule in all the universe. All of it. And again, as we read through the Bible and read about the things that happened at the end of the story the destruction of creation, that ultimately all the heavens and the earth await fire. Again, it's God's to do with as he pleases. This is why when things die and perish, this is why when things that displease us come, God has done us no wrong for it's his creation. He owns it. And, and we, we become so accustomed to the blessings and the grace that we start to think they're really our things. And John starts his gospel make no, make no mistake, the Word made all things. Absolutely all of creation is rightly His. The risen Christ looks at all of the heavens and the earth and the stars, the things that are under them, and He says, That is mine. And John starts here. John starts here. The word is the creator of all. And now he develops his thought continuing with the uh, themes of Genesis because even as creation is how Genesis starts, what's the first act of creation? He creates light. And well, that's where we go to next. The word is the source of life and light. The word is the source of life and light. In him was life. Or you could translate in him life was being. That's, that's the emphasis verbally. That life dwelt within him. And I, and I think this is in two senses. As you think of the Genesis account, and you read through the animals and the creatures that have the breath of life in them, or more specifically even, The creation of man, Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So the account in Genesis is very clear. The life within us is extrinsic to us. It came from outside. God breathed it into us. It came from him. He is the author of life. He has life within himself. He has an abundance of it. And so he is able to animate and give life. So I think that's part of it, that that every bird, every living thing around you, the life that is in Christ is where that is from. But specifically in John's gospel, it goes from the source of physical life to the emphasis being the source of spiritual life also is dwelling in him. That Christ has spiritual life. This is ultimately why John wrote his gospel, right? Many other things Jesus did. Many other signs Jesus did in the presence of the disciples were not written, but these have been written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So as much as it is true that natural life finds its source in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the word. I think John's emphasis here is actually on eternal life dwelling in him. And that just as he has a fount of life within him from which to animate the created order, he has a fount of life in him to offer eternal life to whom he pleases. He is the source of spiritual life. This is why Jesus can say in John eight twelve, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In him was life. In him was life. Then the life was the light of men. And again, because we're still echoing Genesis, I, I think there is something to this light being physical light. In Genesis 1, before the sun and the moon were made, God said, let there be light. What was the source of that light? It was God himself. This is how the new heavens and the new earth are illuminated. Listen to Revelation 21, 23 to 24. In the new heavens and the new earth, we're back to, in some senses, pre-creation order. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. And by its light, the nations walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So I don't think it's less than physical light. But again, in John's gospel, the movement's going to be spiritual, spiritual, spiritual light. So he's the source of physical light. I think that's true. And I think in Genesis 1, that's what we're talking about. And even at the other end of the Bible in Revelation 21, the light of the people without the sun or a moon is the God and the Lamb. But John's emphasis is spiritual light. And again, this is predicted in the Old Testament. This is what's connected with the coming Messiah. Listen to Isaiah um, 9.2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Or Isaiah 60, 1 through 5. Arise, Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising Lift up your eyes all around you and see. They will gather. They come to you. Their sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on your hip. Then they shall see the radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. And the wealth of the nations shall come to you. The glory of Israel, the coming Messiah, is spoken of in terms of spiritual light. And again, this is precisely where John's going to take this in, in his gospel. Spiritual light. Turn to, again, John 3. How does, how does the encounter with Nicodemus get summarized? How does John... I think this is John now talking. It's hard to know in John 3 when Jesus stops talking and when John, the narrator, is talking. I tend to think... It's not critical we understand. I tend to think John is giving us his summary in 319. But in John 319... Light and darkness are put in clearly moral terms. This is the judgment. This is the conclusion of the matter. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. You see, it's light and darkness in ethical, moral terms. And Christ is the light that has come, and men hated the light. This is also what Jesus says in in John 8, 12. We saw earlier, I'll read it again. Then Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So in both senses, linking with Genesis, there's a Some truth that Jesus is the author of created life, and Jesus is the source of the light at creation, just as he'll be the source of light in the new heavens and the new earth. But more importantly, and where John's taking us with this, is that Jesus is the source of eternal life, and that eternal life is spiritual light. And when John's talking about spiritual light and darkness, it's both light to see by and light that is wholesome and holy. Which then brings us to the first note of the conflict that's coming in the gospel, that the light has triumphed over the darkness. The light, his light has triumphed over the darkness. So in him is life, the life was the light of men. Verse five, "The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it." Now, um, John's tenses here shift to present. Literally, John says, "The light is shining in the darkness." and i think there's something triumphant in that the light we're going to see verse 9 began shining as John's considering it when christ came into the world the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world but by saying that the light is now shining as your blank the light is now shining is to emphasize the fact that this wasn't something limited to 33 years of human history But rather, this light that is shining in the darkness continues to shine. This gospel is a testimony to what Christ has done. And so insofar as Jesus' disciples repeat to others what he has done, the scripture records what he's done, his light is still shining. That's John's point. The light is now shining and illuminating. And what's wonderful about light is there's no contest between it and darkness. There's no struggle. The darkness flees when light shines. So as John is going to set up this conflict between darkness and light, and men hating the light and loving the darkness, in the picture of a lamp shining, it defeats darkness. There's no struggle. There's no conflict. There's no tug. There's no resistance. When light shines, darkness flees. Light dispels darkness. Light dispels darkness. That's its nature. In in some senses, this last verse sort of sets up the entire drama of the gospel. The light has come. The light shines. The darkness withdraws. And the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome it. Now, some of your Bibles translate that differently. The the Greek word here could, could mean two different things. Um. Catalumbano against, to take, to take against, to take ahead, something like that. And so some of yours have the word comprehend. I think if you have the NIV or even the New American Standard, it's comprehend. I think the darkness has not comprehended the light. Word could mean that. And there's a way you could take it that way. I don't, I don't prefer it that way. If that's what it's saying, then it's saying something like what verse 10 says chapter 1. He was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And that is true enough. There's a sense in which the darklings, those of darkness, those in the world, did not rightly apprehend, comprehend, grasp who Jesus was. But I don't think that's the fundamental... Idea John has here. So the darkness is not comprehended. the light. Well, that's true enough. And your translations say that, that certainly is true. And that is a valid meaning of the word here. But I think more clearly, and primarily because of a parallel passage, the ESV has it right here, that the darkness has not overtaken the light. The darkness has not quenched the light. The darkness has not grabbed hold of the light so as to seize the light. Hasn't caught it. Hasn't trapped it. Something like that. Tur- turn to John 12, where the same imagery, the same verb is used, and, and, and it's pretty clear what John has in mind in John 12. 35 to 36. This is, this is right at the end. This is the, the last thing Jesus says before he goes private. You remember in chapter 12, he's, he's done with his public ministry, and he's going to withdraw and retreat from them. In fact, that's what 36 says. This is the last thing Jesus says before he goes private. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Now there, that's not the notion of comprehend, right? It's a pretty clear picture. If you're out and it's dusk, there's a moment when the sun goes down from the hills and the darkness overtakes you and you can't see anymore and you're in peril now. When the light is removed, the darkness overtakes you. And so Jesus is saying, there's only a little while longer than I'm here, folks. If you think you see something, you better act on it. You better move for the darkness overtakes you. And I think back in chapter 1, that's the idea that the darkness would have loved nothing more than to snuff out the light of Christ. Perhaps the forces of darkness even thought that's what they were doing in crucifying the Son of God. And so John tells us at the beginning of the gospel, before we get to the cross, before we get to the death, before we get to the resurrection, the light has effectively shone in the darkness, and the darkness was impotent to snuff out the light, to overcome the light, to overtake the light. In other words, the light has triumphed over the darkness. The one who is the word of God, the one who is God himself, the one who is the maker of all things, the author of all life, the giver of eternal life, the source of light and illuminating light has not been defeated He shines now. In in this word, his light is still shining. And so as we get ready to sing our closing song, I would urge you to hear Jesus' words. John is emphatic. Even today, 2,000 years later, that light is still shining. And Jesus' warning is, the light is among you a little while longer. And I'll I'll contextualize that for you. Who, Who knows how much longer you have before you stand and face the living God. Who knows how much longer you have this offer of light and life. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The darkness did not overtake Christ. But there are many who've been exposed to his light, who shrink back in unbelief and perish John wrote so that that wouldn't happen. John wrote so that that life that is in the word would be shared with you, that you might have life in his name. So I'd urge you to walk while you have light, to to trust in, to believe in Lord Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah and as God himself.